I always got to be ready. So <laughs> I didn't expect this, but, you know, I'm a poet, so this is what we do. Um, you see, as of late, I've been pretty cognizant of the fact that it's a lot of black folk walking around with targets on our backs and paranoia on our minds and our hearts are on attack for everything that we love and all that we've lacked. You see, we've been ready to die. We've looked into enemies' eyes. We've seen the violent fetishization, false confidence, and fear unjustified. We've seen a faith that's in short supply. We've seen the truth behind the lies. And we've seen a frustration bubbling from the fact that we have yet to meet demise. We have yet to meet demise. This is On the Margins, a podcast about educational equity in North Carolina. We bring the often untold stories of education in the state from margin to center. Welcome to On the Margins. I'm Jerry J. Wilson, Director of Policy and Advocacy at the Center for Racial Equity and Education. Today's episode is all about memory. The things we choose to remember, those we would rather forget, and what happens when people remember things very differently from one another. We'll spend some time hearing from Professor Karen Cox, a UNC Charlotte historian who studies Confederate memory, and I'll have a conversation with Cortland Gilliam, the poet and graduate student that you heard at the top of the show. Some scholars have called the political moment we're living in the post-truth era, a time when objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal beliefs. In the post-truth era, it doesn't matter whether or not something is true, as long as people react to it with likes, retweets, or votes. At school board meetings around the country, angry white parents are screaming at policymakers about keeping critical race theory out of their schools. It doesn't matter that critical race theory, CRT for short, is taught to law school students, not kindergartners. It doesn't matter that the laws passed supposedly in response to CRT are actually designed to discourage teaching of accurate history and to outlaw racial equity efforts in schools. It doesn't even matter that students of color who are already marginalized may see even less representation in the curriculum as a result. All that has mattered to some policymakers are emotional outpourings from a few white parents. However, the urge to misremember facts in order to advance a political cause isn't new. It's actually a recurring theme in American history. The thing is that textbooks continue those lines up and through the, up through the 1970s. You can find the lost cause narrative in Southern textbooks. And there's a thing about textbooks. They're very, they've, they've been politicized from day one. You know, and um, and so um, it's about you know w- you know what interpretation of history you're going to get. Um, Karen Cox, I'm a professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, and uh, somehow, somewhere along the way, I became a leading national expert on Confederate monuments. Mm. 
and I get asked to talk about that quite a bit. Um, and I just finished a book about it in April called No Common Ground, Confederate Monuments and the Ongoing Fight for Racial Justice. Over 30 years ago, I was, I was working in Fayetteville, North Carolina, for the Museum of the Cape Fear. I was a historian, and, um, and I started researching the United Daughters of the Confederacy. That's kind of where things began, and it became the subject of my dissertation when I went on to, uh, uh, for my doctorate, and, um, and it was only one, there was one chapter in that, in my book, my first book called Dixie's Daughters, which was about that group, um, that focused on monuments. There wasn't a lot of about Confederate monuments in the news. And, and then the Charleston Massacre happened in 2015. And now, there wasn't sort of an uproar about Confederate monuments at the time. It was more focused on the battle flag. But I saw it as about Confederate monuments. And not many people know that I wrote my first op-ed about Confederate monuments after the Charleston Massacre. Mm. And it was for the Huffington Post. And it didn't get a lot of traction. But I basically said, Confederate monuments don't belong on the grounds of government. Mm. You know, and that meant courthouses, that meant state houses and things like that. But the events of the last six years now, um, Charleston, Charlottesville, George Floyd, um, those things um, led me back into this world of Confederate memory and, and writing about it. And it was the Charleston, I'm sorry, it was the um, Charlottesville rally in 17. When, and I recognized it as something really different. You know, this rally that was supposedly under the, uh, they were there to defend the the alleged, you know, removal of, of the um, of the Robert E. Lee monument. And you could clearly see it was about something else. It was about white nationalism. It was a kind of a rally for to a call to arms among white supremacists. And that shook me. And and I thought, let me reach out to a contact I had at the New York Times. I said, I this is different and I want to write about it. And so I wrote these two very different op-eds. Both came out within 24 hours of each other in these major American newspapers. And my life changed after that. Hmm. And I, I, I became, uh, I was called on by news outlets hmm. on a regular basis. I started speaking across the country. Um, and in 2019, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times on the second anniversary of Charlottesville and then my press, UNC Press, came to me and said, write this book. <laughs> <laughs> write this book. I was said, ah, I don't want to write this book. This, is, this topic has been, you know, like a weight around my neck for the last couple of years. But I decided that I was the, I believed that I was the person to write the book. Hmm. I'd been writing about it, speaking about it for the past couple of years at that point, two years. And so that's, so that's what I did. And, and I, I realized that the story of Confederate monuments was much bigger than what I had written about several years earlier. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is a story that's more, about, more than just about Jim Crow, although it's very much that. But it's about racial progress or the attempts at racial progress 
and the ways in which these symbols, both the monuments and battle flags, are used to intimidate and to draw attention back to white power structures. I also asked Dr. Cox how neo-Confederate groups have used schools and history to advance their cause. You know, Ladies Memorial Associations, their moment was in the 19th century, you know, right after the, the, the Civil War ended. And, and, um, and then the UDC comes along in 1894. The Ladies Memorial Associations, I think, already begins thinking about history. You know, they think about, first of all, they already are thinking about monuments. Um, as soon as they create these Confederate cemeteries and, and bury these soldiers, they leave a space for a monument. Mm. And, um, you know, they, they begin crafting a narrative, you know, around the Confederacy, around monuments, around slavery, around soldiers, around their leaders, early, early on, and they involve children in that process. And then you get the UDC, which is a second generation of women. Some of them had been in the Memorial Association. Some were really new to this whole process. And they see history as a way in which to... um, First of all, ensure that there is a pro-Southern, pro-Confederate version of events. Um, They see it as a means of, you know, honoring their ancestors. And then they also are very much forward-looking in their approach because they they believe that we have to um, raise children that you know uh, white children in the south to continue to believe in these um, uh, values of the confederacy and so uh, they they definitely see it as a tool it's not just uh, about learning history really it's it's you know it's it's really about um, shaping um, a citizenship or citizenry that's going to defend these principles um, that they they believe in and shared with their confederate ancestors and so what are those values? Well, those values are that the Confederacy was right in seceding, that those southern states were right in seceding and forming a Confederacy, I should say. And um, that, you know, sla- you know, slavery was not a cause for the Civil War and it, things were fought over states' rights. And, and, and also, you know, it's about valuing... Um, white supremacy in, in, in various contexts. Some teachers were UDC members. Mm-hmm. They um, placed portraits of Confederate heroes and battle flags in the classrooms of the school. They monitored school textbooks. And, and so, uh, so they, what they've done is create a generation of, of white Southern children who by the time of fights over segregation or desegregation occur in the 50s and 60s, then um, they've, those children are now adults and they've been raised on that. (laughs) 
you know, it's part of the blowback against 1619 because it's like, oh, we can't have that interpretation. Um, you know, we, you know, we want to whitewash that history. Um, we only want to talk about the good guys, and at least in their mind, the good guys are the founding fathers or all, only positive stuff in American history, whatever that is. But and to ignore all the all, you know, the things that we know about about slavery and Jim Crow segregation and mass incarceration and all these other things. So, um, so during that period in the fifties and sixties, they're still doing the same stuff. And what they do is like, they basically, again, add to it, right? We're going to add to this narrative that, um, civil, these civil rights workers or these, you know, they're coming in from the North are, are communists, you know? So it's, it's like, it's, you know, a little fear mongering going on around that. And so, um, this is the thing. It's just like, this is why I think, you know, you think generation after generation after generation are learning that narrative. Um, it's, it's the reason it's so embedded in our culture today when you can, you know, when you can have, you know, some politician stand up and defend, this or say, oh, the Civil War was never about slavery, you know, and you know that's just a line right out of the Lost Cause, right. and and the thing about it is, it's not it's not just um, a Southern issue. We know that that kind of thing goes on outside of the South, and we also know that you can find battle flags flying almost, you know, pretty much any state in the country at this point. And they're, you know, it's like, and Charlottesville showed us this as well. Charlottesville, uh, you could see Confederate battle flags waving. Most of those people that were there were not even Southerners. They couldn't even claim Confederate heritage. But that those those symbols, primarily the flags and the monuments, um, still represent this defiance against racial progress. I want to say, you know, if I don't want to have to bring this up, but the CRT stuff, right? The 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 fighting that goes on, the screaming and yelling matches that go on at these school board meetings and things like that. You know, this is somebody has like changed the narrative, right? And they're very good at it. You know, they've said, oh, you know, your children are being taught this and that in the schools, and we all know that that's not true. That critical race theory is not taught in the schools, in the public schools. It's not, it's it's something that's taught at the college level, something that's primarily taught in law schools. Right. And so what I say, you know, my response is I don't teach that. I teach history. And you, and, and so you have to be honest in what you teach about history. You can't just whitewash it because you're not, then you're not, you're not teaching history at that point. And so, you know, my concern, of course, is that, you know, that um, trying to just teach history has become controversial. Right. It's not about casting shame on people. Um, it's, it's about being honest um, about the facts of, of the situation. And um, I can, you know, one of the reasons I think I'm good at this is because I'm a white Southerner. I, you know, I, you know, as the person who delivers the message, because I can say I have a Confederate ancestor somewhere back there, you know, I have it. Um, at the same time, it's like, that doesn't mean I embrace it. It doesn't mean I embrace, embrace that cause. Um, you know, it just means I'm, you know, I understand it in, in historical context and can also 
believe that, you know, we just, you know, you, it's, it's about like understanding that history without saying, oh, well, this is, you know, you should be ashamed of it. I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's just about understanding. I don't think I'm not ashamed about, uh, you know, of myself, but I think that, you know, you no, know, there is shame in slavery. There is shame in segregation. There is shame in mass incarceration. And I think we have to to be forthright and 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 speak about that, and and not be afraid to speak about it, not be afraid to learn it or teach it. Coming up, I'll ask Professor Cox about people who refuse to remember history as it happened. Plus, we'll hear from Cortland Gilliam. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break. Mark your calendars. On April 29th and 30th, Creed hosts the 2022 Teaching in Color Summit. This hybrid event is an opportunity for educators of color to connect and to envision a world that truly values their contributions and the students they serve. More information is coming soon. Be sure to follow the hashtag Teaching in Color on social media for updates. Welcome back to On the Margins. Let's return to my conversation with UNC Charlotte history professor, Dr. Karen Cox. What, what do we do about folks who just are refusing to acknowledge the actual historical documents, right? Like, it's almost like, like the evidence doesn't matter. Uh, because like you said, folks who've been taught these things their entire lives, they believe them at this point. It's a belief system, right? It's not necessarily like something that they've studied right mm-hmm. um. you're right about that I think that no you know for some people no matter um, no amount of historical evidence is going to change their mind that this that these symbols are about heritage and um, and so um, I think there's a couple of things first of all the way I've thought about it is like I, um, you know, as someone who talks about this and lectures about it and, you know, teaches about it, I say, you know, the thing is, is that um, because some of my students come in with those perceptions because that's what they learned in their high school classrooms. And um, and so I'm not going to try I'm not going to waste my time trying to convince those who are, are not to be convinced what I'm, you know, and on the other side, you have people say, oh, yes, of course, you know, this is, this is the historical evidence. Of course, this is right. Um, it's the people in the middle that we have to reach. It's the people who may be doubting and could be persuaded. It's, it's those individuals. It's, it's, you know, a new generation of Southerners who have protested 
um, you know, for so long it had only been black Southerners who said and called it out. Now they've been joined by, you know, a, a more of a plurality of, of, of citizens from this region. And, um, and so, I, you know, there's hope in that. There's also hope in, I think, um, the same generation who says, I don't believe. There are still, again, open-minded people. And I can tell you that, for example, um, I've spoken to churches and um, who reached out to me and said, we want to talk about this. We've got these stained glass windows in our church, mm-hmm. and we want to understand. So there are people who are open-minded. And so people of faith, people, you know, um, you know are, are willing to, you know, to keep an open mind. And I think we should focus on that, you know, and um, because um, I think we can do that through history and through the evidence. So I want to close by returning to something that you said earlier. You said that Confederate monuments or any monument, it represents the values of the people who erect it. Um, And I'm wondering about what these monuments say about the values of the people who maintain them and protect them um, when other parts or members of the public are trying to remove them? Well, as you know, um, what we've had is a series of laws that have been passed. Um, in North Carolina, um, the North Carolina Monument Law, it's, it's a really long name. I can't think of the full name of it, but it's essentially the Monument Law and um, was passed um, only a month after the Charleston Massacre. Mm. And, um, and basically it prevents any removal, even a removal of a monument, but also if it's removed, it can't go to a museum mm. where it could receive proper contacts, any of that. And so what they've done is take away local control. You know, uh, uh, gerrymandered um, districts that have put in power um, a small white minority who believes in these things, and then and they say, oh, you you in wherever, whatever town in North Carolina, you can't do that. So um, on the one hand, it's like... There are people who have wanted to remove these things in their communities, and they've maybe they've been prevented from doing so because of the law, and um, because I I think they you know people believe that this this doesn't represent our values in the 21st century, um, but there are those people that are that actually are in power, and they have the power to prevent these things from being removed, and so they're. They're basically claiming, you know, making a claim for to protect and preserve the values of of the Confederacy and of what that those what that represents, and it tends to represent, you know, white privilege and white supremacy and white history and white heritage and you know and and on down the line. Um, and so, you know, it's a it's a stand. It's it's almost like to, it's a taking a stand against the progress that has been made since the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You know, it's a, it's a stance against racial equality. It's a stance against multiculturalism. It's a stance against 
affirmative action. It stands against a whole bunch of different things that's kind of tied up in these statues. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, this, you know, I think people need to understand that, you know, that, um, and so what do you do, right? What the, the question becomes, what do you do? So this gets back to my feelings about, you know, how do we, how do we think about it and talk about it? Is that, okay, um, <laughs> right now we cannot change the law right now. I mean, voting rights is being, are being suppressed. Um, but it doesn't, we, they can't stop us from talking to each other. They can't stop us from maybe changing people's minds about things. Um, you know, and they know that, right? They know that that's why they're fighting so hard against CRT, which we know that's not what it is. They're, you know, they're attacking basically learning history. Um, and because they're scared, they're scared that if these, you know, a new generation of children learn these, learn that proper history, they're going to, you know, they're going to be in disagreement with the people in power right now. And, And they know that. For the remainder of this episode, I want to share my conversation with Cortland Gillian, a graduate student in the School of Education at UNC Chapel Hill, and a good friend of mine. Cortland and I launched a protest a few years ago where we committed to wearing Carolina blue and white nooses around our necks for as long as the Confederate statue stood on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill. Our conversation touched on the protest and its impact on Cortland's memories of the university, and we discussed ways to center marginalized students. I hope you enjoy. You know, my, my experience at Carolina is more limited than yours. Um, you certainly have m- much more time in the game <laughs> than I've had. And yeah, I'm a veteran. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm, I'm still a rookie. And, you know, I, I've been reminded lately, and thankfully so, that we shouldn't love institutions that won't love us back. Right? Mm, it's a word. But I'm also reminded of how often we are encouraged to and feel the urge to love our alma mater, right? Yeah. I'm wondering if you can speak to how you feel about Carolina at this point. Would you describe that as as a loving relationship or or engagement or how does that feel to you at this point yeah you know um that's a great question especially coming on the heels of uh homecoming weekend Mm -hmm. um you know each you know since i've been back as a graduate student you know each year there's generally some kind of homecoming buzz or some like alumni buzz from um you know my you know peers you know what i mean people i graduated undergrad with and you know, most people left, <laughs> went away. Um, and so they're still, in their mind, Carolina is still the space where they made those friend groups. And mm-hmm. it's still the space where, you know, they had those, those you know, nighttime strolls throughout the campus and, you know, days on the quad. And all those those experiences are still wrapped up in what it means to be an alum, a graduate of Carolina for, for, for most of my, my friends. But for me, you know, I've been here. 
um, and particularly through a period of transition for the university um, in, in the sense of, you know, people starting to unearth a lot of the university's history um, as it relates to um, its complicitness, complicity, <laughs> one of those are the right word, um, as it relates to that and in um, its its culture of, of white supremacy and um, anti-blackness and how it has, you know, uh, treated people of color generally, but black um, folks and in, in, to be specific uh, throughout its history. So a lot of that's been unearthed during my time as a as a graduate student. And, you know, I've been a part of some of that, you know, resistance, some of those efforts to unearth and to reveal, to hold up a mirror um, to the institution for it to see itself. Um, and so to get to your question, like for me, the relationship, you know, it's, it's, it's loving to an extent, but rather than loving the institution of Carolina and, um, the, rather than loving the Carolina experience as we're taught to love, to love it, it's more so, um, a love of like, you know, of, 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 of people, of, of black people in the space, um, whether I've had personal relationships with them or not. Um, my relationship with the institution is one in which I'm trying to, you know, model and, um, enter into more, you know, positive relationships with, um, the people of the space and, you know, things that I'm doing to push the university in certain directions is, um, out of a love for, the black students who came before me and the black students who are coming behind me, the black faculty who have chosen to leave, the black faculty who choose to stay, right? Um, staff persons who often get overlooked, you know, for promotions um, or in their day-to-day life, you know, they, they aren't always treated the best. Um, so I, I guess my love for the institution is now a love for um, certain people and populations who are finding some way to exist within this space that is so, um, you know, saturated with, you know, uh, anti-blackness, you know? Um, so it's like, a, I guess it's a love of sorts, you know, but it's, again, it's not a love of the institution. I think so much as, um, some of the people who find themselves in these kind of difficult attachments and these difficult roles and positions within the institution. Um, yeah, but it's a different kind of love than maybe what I experienced as an undergrad where I was more, um, you know, in that bubble of being a young adult and having a certain kind of freedom um, and the privilege to really just, you know, only focus about, you know, your focus on your studies. But then, you know, the rest of your days are spent hanging out with friends and making memories. Um, and that was like the extent of my love. So I, I appreciated the university for providing that. Um, and yeah, I was kind of just wrapped up in that experience at that time, but as time has gone on, you know, I have a lot, I have a very different relationship with the institution now. Um, and I can see the way that it exploits people more, um, from my current position than I could as an undergrad. Um, but it's very different from how a lot of my friends still view the institution, which has been frustrating, um, to see, you know, on social media, you know, people still, even people still wrapped up in, in the sports culture, which, you know, love sports. You know, I mean, well, you know, I enjoy sports. You know, I used to play sports. And, of course, like, I have respect for um, what the opportunity does for, for students who come here, particularly black students. Um, 
you know, but also I know that it's not one that's free of oppression or free of exploitation, right? That's part of that experience as well. Um, and it seems like a lot of my peers, fellow classmates, um, they don't, folks don't want to get into the messy conversations about what does it mean to be a big fan of Carolina basketball, mm. knowing all that Carolina basketball has like done and how centered the, this, the, the basketball culture or the sports culture is within the university experience. Um, at the cost of centering more important conversations or other, you know, other conversations around the institution's history and kind of, you know, the difficult history. Um, so that's kind of been my current frustration is like looking at everyone just being like, yeah, 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 rah, rah, Carolina, you know, and I don't hear them chime in on other issues, you know, like when Silent Sam was, you know, a hot topic, less people were like talking about it. And I was like, I mean, y'all were black at UNC too. Y'all, y'all remember what it was like, you know what I mean? So, um, so I'm kind of getting off of your question, but, um, it's, it's an inch, the, the love I've, 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 I've evolved in like, I guess where I situate the love. Um, at one point it was probably like a love of the institution. Now it's more so like a love of the people and the community that make the institution what it is Mm. or the best parts of the institution make it what it is. Okay, so you mentioned that you've been part of this resistance to the culture of white supremacy on campus and these efforts to reveal the history of the university. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, So, yeah, I think the long arc of it probably started um, during my second year as a graduate student. so this is, you know, around, I think, 2017. Um, so, you know, we're just about a year into Trump, Trump's uh, administ- the Trump administration. And, you know, hot topics of the previous summer were like, you know, the Muslim ban. Um, you know, there's conversations around DACA uh, not being renewed. Um, and, and then again, then there was, you know, the kind of ever-present kind of conversation around Silent Sam, um, but it was starting to kind of bubble up a little bit more and become a little bit more um, widely discussed on campus. And so all these kind of social issues were going on, and, you know, I'm a year into grad school, and I found that my home department was not taking an active role in either, you know, neither holding space for these conversations or, you know, doing anything about you know, the culture, like not, they weren't weighing, weighing in, whereas some other departments were starting to kind of chime in as to where their department stood on some of these issues. Um, my home department was not doing that. And um, even a lot of faculty weren't really raising these issues in, in, in their classes. And so um, a group of grad students, small group of grad students, uh, you know, peers, friends of mine, we decided to try to like raise awareness or just to provoke conversation. Um, so we engaged in a little bit of like a flyer protest, um, which I won't get into the weeds of because <laughs> it's a highly controversial, <laughs> highly controversial issue. Um, but essentially we had flyers with different social justice messages on them and we, you know, distributed them throughout uh, our department. And that effort of at starting a conversation was perceived as vandalism, 
by our home department and was completely erased. Um, like our flyers were all taken down before a conversation could even take place, which is to me, that was the strongest display of institutional power I had experienced in my life up until that point. Um, a very deliberate attempt to silence a message, um, to prevent a conversation from happening. And this is in a, you know, this is in a ostensibly progressive, liberal, educational space um, whose, you know, core values or mission statement, you know, would signal that social justice, quote unquote, is something that, you know, that it believes in. So that was just really surprising to me, the fact that there was such a strong effort at silencing that message and that conversation. And so that kind of awakened within me a certain understanding of the necessity to be, I won't say always provocative, but a necessity to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I look back at that as kind of my moment of radicalization. Mm-hmm. Even though all we were doing was hanging flyers, um, I still look at that moment and that experience as a, a moment of radicalization. And so, you know, you fast forward, you know, a year. Now the conversations around Silent Sam are a lot um, more common on campus. Um, and one of uh, another graduate student from a different department um, had participated in a, an, act, an act of civil disobedience um, where they, you know, poured a mixture of, of paint and blood on the statue that's called Silent Sam, which is a Confederate monument, um, uh, or a monument to a Confederate soldier. Um, not a real Confederate soldier, but just kind of mythologized, you know, just figure, you know, figure uh, of a Confederate soldier. Um, and so the student, you know, participated in that action, poured this blood paint mixture on the statue to contextualize it, to contextualize the violence that the Confederacy represented, particularly the anti-black violence, violence that the Confederacy represented. And after seeing that action, you know, you know, I was inspired to get more involved, um, along with you, (laughs) which I don't know if you want me to get into that entire story, but, um, once that happened, you know, you and I started a conversation around how do we how do we advance the conversation? How do we advance this momentum that, you know, our, our graduate peer had started with their act of civil disobedience, civil disobedience? Um, you know, how do we advance that effort in a way that's equally as, you know, provocative and engaging and um will extend that effort and that energy to, to, to wider sectors and, and popu- you know, populations on campus. Um, so that, I think that was, you know, that was the point where I was like, okay, well now I need to start to put myself on the line. Right. So I had my moment of radicalization and then, then I had the opportunity to, to actually participate in something, um, a little bit more directly and more, more candidly. Um, so yeah, that's the setting for it. I don't know if, if I should share more about that action. Um, yeah. So I, I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about that. So cool. if you could describe yeah. the action. Cool. Yeah. So, so yeah. So um, after, you know, witnessing um, our graduate peer do this act of civil disobedience, um, you and I started having a conversation around a noose protest. Um, and the idea was that we would wear nooses um 
a white and Carolina blue noose. So it's like a white rope with Carolina blue taping at the bottom of the noose. Um, we'd wear these while on the campus of University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, for as long as the uh, statue stood, as long as Silent Sam, Sam was still standing. We would wear that noose in protest of the culture of white supremacy on our campus um, and in protest of the administration's, um, you know, negligence um, and their, you know, unwillingness to to do anything about the statue and and beyond the statue to do anything about kind of these wider issues um, uh, of kind of institutional racism that were on campus, you know, whether that's, you know, you know, par- you know, parity and pay for, you know, faculty of color, um, whether that's, uh, you know, changing of building names, right? Um, we have plenty of building names named after um, known Klansmen, white supremacists, et cetera, um, slaveholders, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, so it was in protest of those things. And it was also a way of marking our discontent um, with the space in a very visceral, visual way. Um, And so it was, uh, you know, externalizing kind of pain to and frustration, right? Uh, A complaint, right? We were making a complaint um, and we were wearing that complaint. We were embodying it. Um, And in doing all these things, we were refuting the performance that black people are expected to engage in on that campus. And by that, I mean a performance of, you know, I've been referring to it as a kind of a performance of normalcy, um, which by that, I mean, uh, black people on campus are expected to move throughout their roles, um, their jobs, their, whatever their role on campus is without any grievances, right? Um, kind of this idea that, you know, you're at Carolina, be grateful. Um, Gratitude is the way I describe that. Right. Gratitude. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's the illustrious university, the flagship university. What do you have to complain about? Um, and just we're expected to move through the space as if the history of the space doesn't matter, mm. um, which it very much does for us. And we we feel that, um, you know, I guess I can't speak for all black people, but I'll say, you know, it's very apparent when you're the only one in a space um, and whether or not you're thinking of that history and what comes with that, you know, every moment, you know, whether it's at the fore, but it is part of that experience of being the only or being one of a few um, in these predominantly white spaces. Um, And that can be kind of suffocating. So we wanted to kind of make that point known. Um, We wanted to refute that performance and we wanted to say, yeah, this is a very hyper performative thing that we're doing, but we are performing kind of non-performance, you know, in that way. Um, So yeah, performing a refutation and, um, and not endorsing everything that the university represents. And the last thing I guess I'll say about like the intent and some of the idea of that protest was that it's a mobile form of protest. So that's something we would be wearing when we go to class, when we go to dining spaces on campus, um, walking throughout the quad. And so it's this idea that, you know, it's something that we're carrying with us, like the weight of that history. Mm. Um, we're carrying that with us wherever we go, because that's what we do as black folks, and not only on that campus, but in this country. Um, and it was just a kind of, again, like a visual and mobile way for people to kind of engage with that. And so 
you know, we wanted to see who would engage and how they would engage um, with that protest. So, yeah, that was the action. Um, and we announced that we'd be doing this protest on August 20th, 2018, which was uh, a rally um, in support of the graduate student who um, engaged in the act of civil disobedience with the statue. Um, so it was a rally in support of them, but also, again, a rally to kind of further you know, raise the cause of removing the statue. Um, so you and I both, you know, stood on the steps of the courthouse slash post office, um, Freedom Plaza, I believe it's called. Freedom and Justice Plaza. Freedom and Justice Plaza, yeah. Um, and we declared that, you know, for as long as statues stand, we'll be wearing these nooses. Um, I don't know if you want to, want me to share what comes after that <laughs> in the story. Yeah, so, so something very interesting happened, right? You know, right. You and I have had put on these heavy, heavy nooses and declared our intent to wear them until the statue came down. Mm-hmm. And we were unsure of how long that would be, and we were gearing up to do it for the long haul, right? But yeah. a couple hours later, yep. you know, something else happened. Yeah, so... You know, probably three hours later, I think it was, the statue, the statue ends up being toppled. Um, so a group of, you know, student activists, you know, anti-racist student activists, student organizers, and some community supporters and organizers toppled the statue, pulled it down. And so the statue's down, you know, three hours <laughs> into our protest. And we didn't know that that was going to happen, you know. Um, so it was kind of like shocking to us because, like you just said, we started to wrap our heads around, you know, going into this for the long haul. You know, this is going to be a semester-long engagement, maybe the whole year. You know, we weren't sure. And um, so, you know, the statue's toppled. Mind you, this is the first time the statue has not been standing in over 100 years. Mm-hmm. The statue was erected in 1913, um, and this is 2018. And so, you know, everyone is in cheers. People are shouting and celebrating and you know, screaming and running around. And I remember walking up to the statue maybe, you know, 10 minutes after it was toppled because I walked away for a bit and came back. And people are running past me. They're like, hey, you could take your noose off, bro. You could take the noose off, man. We did it. And, you know, it was a weird moment because while I was so excited, you know, to see that statue be in the dirt, (laughs) in the earth, face down, um, you know, as a former student, you know, an alum of this institution, um, I was excited. But then I was like, you know, hearing all those people run by me and tell me I could take the new stuff. I was like, I don't know if y'all got it. <laughs> I don't think y'all got the message. You know, I, mean, I don't think y'all understood what 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 we were about to do. You know what I mean? Because um, we were trying to extend the conversation beyond the bronze and the concrete of the statue and talk about what's born in the bodies of black people on that campus. You know, what do we wear? you know, seen or unseen? What are we wearing with us? Um, What burdens are we carrying? How do we carry them? And so, you know, it was just, it was kind of, it just made me think of that, that moment where, you know, back to that kind of short brief, or maybe, maybe we're still in it, but that moment of that post-racial experience after Obama got elected and people were like, yeah, we did it. (laughs) We, we, we beat racism, you know? Um, And yeah, so it was a difficult thing, but you know, ended up, I ended up keeping my noose on that entire night, you know, even as people, we were celebrating, I was like, nah, I, I'm going to hold on to this for a little longer. Um, and we ended up holding on to it for a little bit. Um, you know, I think, so, so I guess to kind of go back to the story, if I may, um, 
you know, so this rally was the day before classes started or the night before classes started um, for the fall 2018 semester. And so you and I, you know, after the statue was toppled, we had a conversation via text and we we're like, well, you know, do we want to continue with this protest or do we want to call it quits? <laughs> you know, um, having not gotten to do the work, so, so to speak. Um, and I think what we settled on was that, you know, it was a historic moment for the campus. Um, it's a lot of chatter, a lot of commotion and chaos around it. And I think we decided to see how the next couple of days, weeks w would play out. Right. Um, and so we ended up suspending the protest um, and started that school year, that academic year, not wearing the nooses. Um, just to see how the campus would react and how the administration would react. And um, that lasted for a few months, <laughs> um, which, yeah. Uh, All right, so we um, get word at the end of November, right, that the university is about to take action and do yeah. something with the Confederate monument. And we find out at the beginning of December when the Board of Trustees meets mm -hmm. that they are proposing constructing a $6 million, $5 million. $5 million, yeah, I think it was the price tag. Mm -hmm. History center, as it was called, that would house the statue and supposedly tell the history of the university and contextualize the statue. Um, <laughs> so a shrine. <laughs> right, right. And, and so lots of folks at that time who heard about the proposal, called it a shrine, right? Yeah. Which it very much seemed like. And it was very sketchy about where the funding was coming from and who was providing it, whether these were state funds, you know? Right. Also, the location yeah. of the history, proposed history center was going to be on South Campus, right? Yeah. Which, which, which was a historically black, um, I won't say the black neighborhood. <laughs> the <laughs> South <laughs> Campus is where most black students have lived historically throughout the university's history. Mm -hmm. um, and, and at such a level of like segregation where they used to call, you know, Manning, Manning uh, Street, which... That's the road that the hospitals sit on. On the north side of that is where the hospitals are. And the south side is there was some the south side of Manning uh, Street was where um, some of the, you know, residence halls were um, a lot of um, athletes would live in some of those those apartments and, and residence halls. And people called Manning the Mason Dixon line <laughs> Wow! because it was that stark. You had all these black students living um, south of that um, and a lot of white students, you know, living living on the north side and so that's where they were, that was one of the, the 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 locations for this quote unquote educational center was like in the heart of black campus you know so what does that mean to build this center for you know education around the confederacy um in the heart of of black campus right right yeah so one one thing that i was struck by during that moment and i remember everything being framed as a conversation, right? And <laughs> yeah. the administration was always talking about, well, we need, we need to continue the dialogue around these issues. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember they solicited input from really anybody, the community yeah. and students and alumni through email. Yeah. And I remember supposedly after they reviewed that, they were like, well, it looks like 
the people want the Confederate statue to stay. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I remember thinking like, okay, which people? Which people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? The ones who are on campus right uh-huh. now, right, uh-huh. who have to walk past it every single day? Nah. Or, you know, anybody who is not affiliated with the university directly and doesn't pay thousands of dollars right. a year to be on campus. On right? campus, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I just remember from that time just like the series of insults and what felt like slaps in the face mm, mm-hmm. of like policies and policy proposals yeah. that disregarded my well-being as a black student. Right. Right. And, and yeah, and I think what you said there is, is critical as a black student, right? Um, this is something that I think both in you and I were able to think about, but I think that you really started raising this point. Um, and from an education lens, you know, we're, we're getting our PhDs in education. Um, what does it mean for your learning environment to have such a, th- uh, threatening, um, intimidating, you know, um, and violent symbol, you know, what does that mean to be a part of your learning environment? Like a, a parallel would be like, you can't imagine walking into any public K-12 classroom today and seeing like. Uh, a picture of, of, of a swastika, you know, or a flag with a swastika on it from Nazi Germany, seeing that in a classroom and not like batting an eye. Right. right? You know, so why, why would it be so, so accepted to have a symbol of that, that represents equal, uh, an equal amount of violence or something that's as violent, um, or that represents a political, um, ideology that was as violent as that. Um, and just think that that's that's just like that's just our tradition. That's just you know what I mean. Right. Um, so from a st- standpoint of being a student, that's impeding with my ability to learn in this space because I'm concerned about that thing on the wall. You know what I mean? I'm concerned about that statue that I have to walk by. Um, so yeah, that's just a really great point. So I mean, and I mean, if, you're, if we're talking about what it means to be marginalized mm-hmm. in the context, right? Mm-hmm. Like. Like, that's an act of harm, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's not like black students have been silent about that, right? Right. For decades. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's funny, like, when you, if you do the history of looking at, like, anti-Silent Sam protests or resistance, it's not a sh- shocker that they start when the campus started admitting black students. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as the campus started admitting black students in any kind of sizable number, you start to see the earliest mention of people with, you know, picketing or rallying around the statue talking about, you know, it's, it's, you know, the, it's presence on the campus, right? That's once we were allowed in the door, we are like, Hey, we should start changing the way this place looks if we're going to be here. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so yeah. So 1955, mm-hmm. first black students were admitted. Yes. To the university. Mm-hmm. Not a long time ago. Right. right. Universities are very interesting. Schools are very interesting in that, right? Like, they exist as they are mm-hmm. for a snapshot in time, right? Mm-hmm. That year, that collection of people in a given school or institution will never be exactly as it, as it was, right? Right, right. You know, some folks are going to leave, and that's students, that's staff. Mm-hmm. That formation will never be the same. I like to think of it as like sandcastles, right? Mm-hmm. You can build a beautiful sandcastle and 
at some at some point it's going to wash away, right? Yeah, it's going to wash back into the ocean. Those grains of sand will never be reformed exactly as it were. Schools are very similar, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think about like how folks who have been part of an institution, like a university or a school, continue to lay claim to that university or that institution after they have no longer, after they're, they're no longer enrolled, right? They're no longer a student there. Mm-hmm. But they still hold some sort of claim, yeah, right? And for me, I've always felt like, you know, Carolina is kind of like a museum. <laughs> mm. it, it feels like a museum mm. in that mm. when alumni come back, you know, they're looking for the places that they used to frequent, right? Yeah. And they want to see the same layout and everything how it was, you know, because mm-hmm. that's familiar to them. Yeah, that's big. Yeah. And, and there's always the recurring conversation <laughs> of, and I've even started to participate the, uh, uh, in this as someone who's even still in the town, but there's always the like, uh, oh, there used to be a, what you call it here? Now mm-hmm. there's a, now there's a pizza place, but that used to be a coffee shop or that used to, you know, there's right. always this like, let's return to the spaces and check for what's different right. um, and talk about how great it was that the thing we were familiar with used to be there, you know, right. Right. <laughs> um, like, Oh, these, 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 these youngins, they don't, they don't know anything. Like they don't know about the library. <laughs> we used to have good times at the library. Now, you know, now it's just a vacant, a vacant uh, space. And, and that's, that's not the library with the books. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sorry. We're talking about the library of the club <laughs> or the bar, but yeah. So, but that's, that's a, such a great point. Cause that's almost like ritual now. Right. To return to the space and to 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 refer to what used to be there, um, and to to almost privilege or not privilege, but to put on a pedestal what used to be there, as if it's somehow just because it's part of your experience and what you've you know cemented with Carolina mm-hmm. that it's better than what students are currently exposed to. Whereas you know I'm sure the process will repeat. The students who are currently graduating from Carolina will return in five, 10 years and be like, you know, I miss having Benny Capala's here. You know what right. I mean? Like it's a pizza place that's, that's currently there. So, um, but yeah, that's a very interesting part of it too. And with the idea of the sandcastle, another thing that that makes me think about is like, you know, the sand and the content of the castle is changing because the mm. people are changing, right. but there's still the mold, you know, you still have your bucket right. that you're using if you're using a bucket, but you still have your bucket, you know, or you still have your, um, castle mold that you're filling up and that's like the institution mm. itself is that mold and you know new people are coming in leaving um but falling into a similar mold right yeah so if we're thinking about how to move from the margins to the center mm-hmm. black folks who have been traditionally and currently excluded to the margins. Mm-hmm. We need new molds, new buckets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, if 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 the goal is to move us from the margins to the center, you need a infrastructure that will support that. Mm. You need a mold of a bucket that'll support that. Um, otherwise, we're just we're 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 banking on the sands falling in different places. <laughs> you know, within the same mold. Um, yeah, I don't I don't see there being another way to get there without new institutions or you know, new institutional practices um that are very like reconstructive like from their from their core 
they they have the the intent of moving the margins to the center, mm. not just the aspiration of mar- you know, moving from the margin or moving people from margins to the center, but they are designed to do that, and that will require to that that requires institute new institutional molds that are designed to move people who are currently in the center from the center. <laughs> yeah. There has to be space for the people coming from the margins. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's that's the part that hasn't changed. You know, with diversity and inclusion efforts, it's like, oh, let's bring, you know, let's, let's increase the size of our margin. <laughs> let's grow the margin. <laughs> but, like, keep the margin, the margin. Keep the same people in the margins. But let's just have more of them there. Um, and that's really kind of adding on to the exterior of the institution rather than um, reconstituting its internal um, mechanism or space, right? Because in order to do that, you have to, you do have to, 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 to move in clear space within the center. And, and the people who are historically in the center can't stay there. And I think that's why institutions don't change is because they want to, they just want to grow the margin. They want more people um, from, you know, quote unquote, underrepresented or whatever kind of populations to be present or to be around, um, but not in not in positions of power, not in positions of to make decisions, and making decisions that will support more people of color getting to those positions. for joining us on this episode of On the Margins. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Karen Cox and Cortland Gilliam. See you next time.